You guys doing good this morning? Me, me too. As Pastor Wendy said, we are wrapping up our series on the four-chapter gospel. I told you last week that, uh, that the conversation about restoration, which is where we are today, was going to take two weeks. So this is part two of our conversation about restoration, the fourth chapter in the, fourth, in the four-chapter gospel. Um, there, are, there are times uh, in my life when my understanding of God and his world uh, has been challenged by what I read in the Bible. And part of being a Christian, it's funny, but it's true. Uh, part of being a Christian is finding out what's true about Jesus and then letting that challenge our culture and our traditions. And the fourth chapter, the restoration chapter of the four-chapter gospel, has been one of those places for me. Uh, it's been one of those places where it's challenged me to, th- to, to reconsider some of the things that I've grown up thinking. And if, if you find yourself, as we're having a conversation this morning, having a similar experience, I just want to encourage you to let the scriptures have the first word and your tradition have the second. Can we do that? Just, God, what does your word say about what comes next? So uh, last week we began with part one of the conversation on restoration, and we learned together that, that there are signs and symbols from Israel's past that sometimes God pulls forward into the present as a picture of something that he is doing new. And we saw together how the Exodus story was reflected in Jesus' time in the wilderness and coming back across the Jordan and into the Promised Land. And if you weren't able to be with us last week, um, I know it was Super Bowl Sunday, it's kind of a big deal. Uh, I want to encourage you to take some time to go on YouTube and watch that teaching because it will help you uh, in your understanding for our conversation this morning. So when Jesus came across and out of the Jordan River, he he declared, he announced that the kingdom of God had arrived in him and that God was launching a rescue operation. And he did that through acts of restoration. We saw how he opened blind eyes, how the lame were healed, uh, the leper was cleansed, the demoniac was set free, and the outcast, Levi, was brought back into community, God restoring. And as, as he continues to move the story forward through these radical acts of, of restoration, there's a, there's a growing sense in Israel that perhaps he actually is the anointed one. Perhaps he actually could be the Messiah. And excitement grows and grows and grows, and then something horrible and unexpected happens. Jesus dies. But he doesn't just die any death. He, he dies at the hands of Israel's enemies on a Roman cross. Now, there were a number of expectations of the Messiah in the first century. There are things that they thought he would do. Let me me just share four of them, the four core of them with you, these primary expectations of the Jewish Messiah. The first was that he would fight a battle against Israel's enemies. The second was that he would rebuild or, or at least cleanse and restore the temple. He was meant to bring Israel's history to its climax, the the epoch of Israel's history, and he would do that through restoring the monarchy to its glory days, like with David and King Solomon. And finally, he would be God's representative to Israel and Israel's representative to God. But there are two things that no one expected. One, there was no expectation of divinity. They did not, they did not expect the Messiah to be divine, and they certainly did not expect him to suffer and die. As a matter of fact, uh, death was a definitive sign that someone who claimed to be the Messiah actually was not. There, there had been other men who rose up in Israel's history, uh, claiming to begin a messianic movement, fighting Rome or whatever the occupying power was, and inevitably they were killed. They died, and the, 
the followers were disbanded because now they knew that couldn't have been the, the, the Messiah. The Messiah is meant to be a conqueror. He is not meant to be defeated. This is why, one of the reasons why the disciples were so incredibly confused when Jesus went to the cross and died. Now, Luke's gospel uh, opens with this incredible statement. Um, the heavens open. There are these shepherds, you remember, that are keeping watch over their flocks by night. An army of angels shows up, and they speak to them, and this is what they say. They say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What does that statement mean? The angels are saying that God would somehow be glorified as Jesus brought about shalom, the sense of human flourishing, to earth. But this, Jesus on a cross, Jesus in a grave, didn't look like that. It didn't look like shalom come to earth. So what, what was God actually up to? So in order for us to understand what God was doing, we need to take a look at the resurrection. So come with me to John's Gospel, chapter 20, and let's read together about this encounter that Jesus has with a woman named Mary. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, same question. Why are you crying, Jesus asked her. Who were you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to my father. But go find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. So Mary goes to the garden, to the tomb where she knew Jesus was laid. She sees him. She encounters him in the garden, but she doesn't recognize him. How can that be? Jesus has walked with Mary for years. It seems as if there's something different about him. We, we see later that although his body bears the marks of his suffering, um, and he can eat, he can, he can drink, he has a, a physical body, yet somehow he is not the same. In his resurrection, speaking of his resurrection, Paul says the imperishable, excuse me, the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable. Or in, in other language, the perfect has clothed, has overcome, overshadowed the imperfect. We're talking about restoration. Resurrection is the ultimate act of restoration. Here God has done something new in Jesus as he has passed from death to life, and this new body is somehow different. It's free of any of the limitations brought about by the corruption of the fall, by, by sin. We, we call this in Bible language, new creation. And this exchange with Mary happens in a garden. Why? Remember, we've learned together that repeated images in the Bible are important because they're telling a larger story. In the first garden, mankind was corrupted by sin, polluted with death as its ultimate result. And here, now, Jesus has died on a cross. He has dealt with sin on our behalf, and he has been raised to life in a new garden. He's been raised to life without the limitations or weaknesses of our fallen condition. None of the effects brought about by sin 
have any bearing on Christ's new body. Listen to the words of Paul as he speaks of this, and we'll unpack it together. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits, that word means the first harvest of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, Christ the first one. And then when he comes, those who belong to him. God is beginning a work of new creation in Jesus in a garden. And what's true of Jesus will one day be true for all of us. He is, he is resurrecting, he is restoring his creation to what it was always meant to be. The garden in John is meant to call us back to the garden in Genesis. And in the garden in Genesis, in Adam, we experienced death. But in the second garden in Jesus, we experience new life, life untouched by the destruction and the devastation of sin. And God is telling a story. The resurrection of Jesus serves as a signpost pointing forward into the future to what one day will be, where the story is going, how the story ends. Let's talk for a minute about what will be, what the resurrection, this this restoration is pointing forward to. This is a question people have wanted answered since the day Jesus rose from the dead. And to be honest, people have asked questions about, about where this, how and where the story ends for even longer than that. I, I don't, I don't want to, they're, they're not just asking questions about what, which the Bible is pretty clear on. People are also asking the when question, aren't they? When's he coming back? When is the world going to end? Well, the Bible is intentionally unclear about that part of the story. In 1970, a man named Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. Many of you may have read it. The Late Great Planet Earth sold 30 million copies. It predicted that the former Soviet Union would bring about the rise of the Antichrist and the apocalypse. The the world would be destroyed and Jesus would take us away. Hal Lindsey believed that Christ would return within 40 years of the birth of the nation of Israel, but it didn't happen. But people were still hungry for answers. They wanted to know. Then Timothy LaHaye wrote the Left Behind series. The Left Behind series sold 80 million copies about the rapture and the end of the world. People are still buying them today because people really want to know. But I think the question that they may be asking is actually the wrong question. People are more interested in when the world is going to end than in what we are supposed to be doing in the meantime. Now, with with every election, with every war or technological advancement, people are looking for signs. Is this it? Is it the end? Is he coming now? But they're trying to solve a problem that Jesus explicitly said, you can't solve. Matthew 24, verse 36, he says, listen, only the Father knows when I'm going to come back. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't study. I'm not saying that it's wrong to ask. I, I just don't want you to be frustrated. And I really don't want you to be afraid of the future. I grew up scared of the end of the world. And the more I have walked with Jesus and the more I have studied his word, the more excited I get about what God is and is going to do. I don't want you to be distracted by the non-essential ideas so that you miss the point of your purpose here now. Do you know who I've come to have a grudging respect for? This might surprise you. Doomsdayers. 
you know the guys that are stocking food and, and, and finding different ways for electricity and digging cellars underneath their house because they're convinced that the world is going to end and they want to be prepared for it. I, I have respect for them because I think they're asking the right questions. They're asking, what's going to happen next? And they're asking, what should I be doing about that right now? They're, they're a group of people who are actually living out their faith in light of their understanding for tomorrow. Now, I haven't reached the same conclusions. But I think they're asking the right questions. What's next? And what should I be doing about it right now? How is the story going to end? What is it going to look like? I want to address the first question and then the second. What's next? And then what should we be doing about it? Now, there are a couple of things that we need to remember for this part of our conversation. The first is the announcement in Luke 2.14 when the angels come and they declare, Jesus is bringing about shalom on earth. Glory to God on the highest and on earth, peace toward men. And then we have to remember that the Old Testament, Jesus' Bible, which contains most of the promises regarding the future, was written primarily by and for Jews. And the New Testament was written primarily in a Jewish context. So scriptures about what happens next or the age to come need to be examined in the light of that context. Now, this is the part of our conversation that may begin to butt up against some of your traditions. And so I want to encourage you again, because it, can I just be honest? The reason it might butt up against some of your traditions is because it butted up against some of mine. And so let's allow the scriptures to speak to us in these next moments. One of the things that that we need to know or remember, if you already know, is that a central tenet in Judaism central goal, was about creating holiness on earth so that God could live among us. That's what they were attempting to do. This is why the Pharisees had so many rules. It was believed that if the entire nation of Israel could keep Torah, keep the law, do everything in it for one day, Jesus, not Jesus, excuse me, they had no understanding of Jesus, the Messiah would come. And he would usher in an age, a period of time where God would be among his people. So they were trying to create an environment of holiness that God might come. But he was going to come to us. They did not believe that we were going to him. They believed that the earth was going to be renewed, it was going to be restored, and it would be returned to us for our care, as it was originally with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Listen to the words of Isaiah. In Jerusalem... The Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. That's restoration. He will swallow up death forever. That sounds like a prelude to resurrection. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land. And his people, the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 66, I will select some of them also, this is God speaking, to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and your descendants endure. Hold that imagery. Now listen to John the Revelator in Revelation 5. Speaking of Jesus, the voice says, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, 
and they will reign on earth. It sounds again like the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve having stewardship of God's sinless creation. John is communicating a vision that he's had and a message from Jesus, and it echoes the Old Testament belief that God was going to do something unique, God was going to do something dynamic here on earth, and that we were going to have a part to play in it. It sounds as if God was not planning to destroy the earth, but rather to resurrect it as he has resurrected Jesus. He was going to remove the poison, the corruption of sin, and restore creation to its original glorified, sinless condition. And for 1,800 years, the church agreed. This is what they believed, and this is what they taught. In 1830, there was a young woman in Glasgow, Scotland, and she was in a revival meeting, a church meeting. And she said that she had a vision of something called the pre-tribulation rapture though she didn't have that language. She said she had a vision of God coming down from heaven, grabbing his church up and taking them to be away with him just prior to a period of significant pain and suffering. There was a man in that meeting named John Darby. John Darby was a British evangelist, and he claimed he, he heard that vision and he felt it to be true. So he began to teach and to preach the gospel of a rapture that God would take peoples away from earth and then God's judgment would be poured out upon it. But when he spoke of the judgment of God, he didn't mean justice, but judgment, which is very different when you read your Bible from the Jewish idea of justice. The Jewish idea of justice has to do with God making things right. Our idea of justice has to do with someone being punished for something that was wrong. John Darby took this message to the United States and he quickly came across the radar of a man named D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was uh, an evangelist, he was a, a preacher, a pastor, built a Bible college, and he embraced this teaching and became its greatest proponent, the greatest disseminator of rapture theology. And then uh, in the early 1900s, um, the Schofield Study Bible came out. The Schofield Study Bible was the first Bible that was not just a reference Bible. A reference Bible in the margins has points of reference, like you're reading something and it will show you where else in the Bible you find the same thing. But this was a different kind of reference Bible. This included explanations of what different scriptures meant from his perspective. And one of the other things he did is he introduced for the first time headings in your Bible over particular scriptures. And so in Mark 24, for example, the heading was Jesus teaches on the rapture. That had never been there before. So generations of Christians are raised in the church and raised in their faith really believing that their Bible is teaching about rapture because when they open it to Mark 24, it says right there, Jesus is teaching about the rapture. And so when you read that scripture, you read it in light of an understanding of a rapture, but that was not the teaching of the early church, nor was it what the Jewish people believed. Neither the Jewish people nor the early church had a theology of departure, and they certainly didn't have one of rapture. They believed that God would come, that God would restore, and God would live among us. When, when we apply our Western thinking to an ancient Near Eastern text, we can quite easily come to some flawed conclusions, which is why we have to start with Scripture. Now, how you doing? <laughs> what are you talking about? Let's, let's talk for a second about heaven. 
and, and the end of the world or the end of the age. When, when I was a kid, and to be honest, even into my adult years, I thought heaven was a place I was going to go to when the world blew up after a nuclear war with Russia. There was going to be some kind of explosive Armageddon. We practiced hiding under our desks in elementary school because that's very helpful in case of a nuclear holocaust. Um, I, I, <laughs> I guess they had to do something. Uh, I thought I was going to have a nice house. I was going to have streets paved with gold. No one would cry. They wouldn't get sick. I'd see everyone who had ever died. I do remember as a kid thinking it might be a little bit crowded. Um, but ultimately, we would be able to escape everything that was bad with earth in exchange for perfection and, and maybe, maybe a set of wings. But my thinking was always that it would be somewhere up there. I still believe, core of my being, that I will spend eternity in heaven and I will be with Jesus but I am much less certain that it is a place I'm going to escape to someday. Let me explain why. This may be a good deep breath moment for you. The Jewish idea of heaven with which Jesus was raised, in which he was talking about the kingdom of God, heaven and the end of the age, they believed that heaven was God's realm, where God's reign and rule were perfectly expressed, separate from but not far from man's realm. And they believed that there were places of interconnectedness where God's realm and man's realm would come together. And you read the scriptures and you can see some of them. The Garden of Eden was one of these places. We know that, that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. God's realm and man's realm, human, humanity's realm, connected and together. The temple and tabernacle were also places of overlap or interconnectedness. If you remember the, the wilderness wanderings, the the pillar of fire that would rest upon the tabernacle by night or smoke by day. Why? So they would know that God was among them. These were places of interconnection, and they believed that they pointed forward, signpost pointing towards something that God intended to do in the future. Now, you and I, if we think about it, we experience some of that interconnectedness even now. When we, when we worship together, as we just did, Scripture says that God inhabits, he lives in the praises of his people. We, we don't sing to a ceiling. We sing with the expectation that God is receiving our praise. When we, when we pray, we are asking, God, would you intervene in our world where we are? Would you let heaven and earth overlap? Again, we have to remember that Jesus was a Jew, and at the writing of the Gospels, he was speaking to a Jewish audience. And in the Jewish context, their mindset in which Jesus was speaking, it didn't appear that heaven was the end of the world. In fact, the opposite was true. The thought was always that God was going to reunite the two. And so I, I dig a little deeper. I want to make sure that what I'm finding is also represented in Jewish literature. And I went on a website, and this is what I found. The central tenet of Judaism is the belief that the world will be renewed. That's my emphasis and corrected to its, return to its pristine, just-created condition. Many of the Old Testament prophets had, had projected explanations of what the Messiah would do for them when he came, and what he would do for God's creation. And they, they use language like this. Listen to the words of the prophet Habakkuk. He says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, as the waters cover the sea. This is language that sounds like God revealing himself, God returning. It, it speaks of restoration and renewal, not, 
destruction. It, it sounds like what God did in Jesus in the garden, he is, will one day do for all of his creation. Think about how Jesus taught us to pray. Do you remember that, that passage where the disciples go to Jesus and they're like, hey, teach us how to pray. And he said, I'm happy to do that. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. He taught us to pray, may, may heaven and earth come together in such a way that there is no discernible difference. Jesus actually taught us to pray, bring heaven to earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Listen again to John in the closing chapters of Revelation. Rather than going to God, us going to God, the language again seems to be about God coming to us. He's just spoken of a new Jerusalem that will come. And, and he's been speaking of, uh, as it comes down, like heaven coming to earth like a bride prepared for her husband. And what we, what we need to understand is when we hear language like heaven coming down, it doesn't necessarily mean... What happens when you graduate from fifth grade to sixth grade? You move up a grade, right? It's, it's language like that. And so he says, heaven comes like a bride prepared for her husband. Again, this imagery of interconnectedness, a man and a woman, very different, coming together and becoming one as heaven and earth come together and become one. Hear what he says. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne, that's Jesus, said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. No one in the New Testament says Jesus has gone into heaven, so let's be sure that we can follow him. The writers seem to be saying Jesus is in heaven, ruling the whole world, and will return and make that rule complete. He will finish what he began, but the direction always seems to be from heaven to earth. And if Jesus ends his book by saying to John in the present tense, look, I am making everything new, there are two things that we can know. Somehow, at some time, some way, God will recreate, reconnect heaven and earth. The second thing is that new creation has already begun in Jesus. And so I ask, are there other places where I can see that new creation happening now? And the answer is an unequivocal yes. Scripture says one of the other places that new creation is happening now in anticipation of what will come is in you and is in me. This is a scripture that has become very familiar to us in our time together. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. When, when we put our trust in Christ for our salvation, when we repent and say, I'm no longer going to try to build my kingdom, I'm going to live under your rule and reign, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead comes and resides within us. We are made new, but our bodies remain corrupted. They have not yet been renewed. I, I played golf yesterday, 
kind of. And uh, it's the first time I played golf and walked with my clubs in probably six to seven months, definitely uh, pre-surgery. And I can tell you, when I got out of bed this morning, my body is not renewed, nor is it restored. It made noises that sounded like I was eating a bowl of Rice Krispies. I mean, it, those of you guys who are young, man, enjoy it, but it's coming, unless Jesus gets here first. But our bodies will be renewed. They will be resurrected. And the life we live now, hear me say this, the life we live now as new creation people points forward prophetically to something God will one day do for all of his creation. This is what it means to be a witness. That what is ha- It doesn't mean to be a mouthpiece, though that is a part of it. It means when people see how God has made you different, how God has renewed you, that you are no longer enslaved by the things that you once were, it points forward to God's intent for his creation and is an invitation for other people to begin to partake now in what will one day be fully realized. I'll explain that in a moment. But the words of Scripture would indicate that what God is going to do for us, he is going to do for the entirety of his creation. Listen to Paul in Romans 8. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he, God, will reveal to us later. All creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. Why? Because Adam and Eve sinned. And sin entered in and corrupted and polluted God's good creation. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join with God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. The NIV says, when it will be brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Creation will be renewed. It will be restored to its intended state. And reflect the glory of God once again. And until that time, you and I are living testimonies of what will one day be true for God's world. What Jesus begins in the garden with Mary when he meets him is pointing to a work that God will one day finish when Jesus returns. And you and I are living right now in the middle of this story. This is where we might have to go, well, now, wait a minute. The kingdom of God is here. Okay, I heard you say that. Um... And when he said the kingdom of God is here, he meant here and now. But it doesn't always look like that. The disciples, the apostles, the early Christians knew that the world was a mess. They, they knew it. they were being persecuted. People were being killed. There were wars. There was plagues. There was sickness everywhere. And yet they still announced that in Jesus, a new king had taken charge and was actively ruling the world. How could they do that? The kingdom of God had come. Jesus was very clear about that. But they understood that it had not yet fully come. What does that mean? It means God's not finished. It began with Jesus. It moves forward through his disciples. And one day, it will come completely. We we live in a period of time in regard to the kingdom of God that, that many theologians call the now and the not yet. The kingdom of God is now here, but it has not yet fully come. And there are stories we can look to in the Old Testament that help us get our head around what that might mean. One of them is is the conflict between King Saul and King David. 
King Saul is the first king of the nation of Israel, and he was not a good king. And he sinned against God, and so God said, I have rejected Saul as king, and so he sends his prophet Samuel, the judge who was ruling at the time. He sends him to the house of a man named Jesse, and while he is there, he comes across a young boy named David, and he anoints him king. He anoints him king of Israel, not future king, but king. David and Saul laid claim to the kingdom of Israel simultaneously. David was king, but he had not yet fully come into or fully realized his kingdom. In the same way, they had to fight for it. In the same way, the whole of created order is now claimed simultaneously by God and by Satan. In the words of Scripture, we have the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of this age. We live in the now. The kingdom of God is here. We can access the rule and the reign of God. We can be made new. And the not yet, as we wait for it to be fully realized when Jesus returns. The New Testament, then, and much of Paul's writings and the other apostles, Teach us how to live as kingdom people in this in-between time. You and I are here in the middle right now. And like the doomsdayers, we need to ask the question, seeing where things are going, but understanding we're still here, what should we be doing now? The battle in and for God's creation remains. And it will remain until Jesus returns to renew all things. Everything that God has created is either moving toward the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. Nothing is static. Nothing just sits. Satan doesn't go, well, I'm going to leave that alone. They're both vying for, competing for the same territory, and nothing is out of bounds. So you and I, remembering chapter 1, we look at things inside the church, we look at things outside of the church, and we ask the question, is that the way they ought to be? And if the answer is no, then we move things closer to the kingdom ideal. Where we see death reigning, where we see death impacting, we practice resurrection in anticipation of the resurrection to come. We move things from death to life. Whether that is is any part, any aspect of God's good creation that has been corrupted, we can work to resurrect. Whether that is film or art, politics, education, social services, We look at those things, and we don't throw up our hands because it's all going to burn anyway. We look at it and say, well, that's not the way it ought to be. God, what do you want to move it closer toward? But that's 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 the important question. How does he want it to look? Because my idea of perfection is not always quite the same as his. So you and I right now are living in the restoration chapter, moving toward what ultimately will be this, this final restoration. So the kingdom has come in Jesus, accessible to you and I. Now there are these moments of interconnectedness between heaven and earth. And the kingdom manifests itself. It, it announces or presents itself through redemptive and restorative works. And the kingdom has not come yet in its fullness, but it will one day. And until that day, God has sent us to the world. Matthew 28, go into the world. Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses. And where does he tell them to go? Under the ends of the earth. You're going to go everywhere. He says, be my restorative and my redemptive agents in this world that I love. 
when, when we allow new creation to take root in our hearts, when we decide that we are going to live within the rule and reign of our living Savior, not building our own kingdom, but aligning with his, we become co-redeemers and co-restorers with Christ. Not in the sense that he did in dying for sins that we might be redeemed, but redeeming things that have been infected or polluted by skin, sin. We bring the kingdom to bear across all specs of, aspects of culture. And there is nothing, guys, hear me, there is nothing outside of our purview. There is nothing outside of our mandate to steward God's creation that he, he gave us in Genesis 2, he reaffirmed in Genesis 3, he restated in, in Psalm 8, and then he, he re-expressed in Matthew 28 to steward his creation. He never told us to hold on and then ultimately to escape out of it. He said, redeem it, restore it. Ask the question, Jesus, what do you want this to look like? Doing okay? Okay? Am I bumping up against some things that maybe you've thought or been taught, felt? You're not going to tell me. Let me close with this. This is what I've learned following Jesus. There's some things we know. Jesus was raised from the dead. There's some things we don't know. I have no idea when he's coming back. And there's some things that are frankly hard to imagine. I can't get my head around how God is going to renew the world. Because I can't fathom it. But that's okay because Scripture says, no eye is seen, no ear is heard, no mind is conceived what God has in store. We can't imagine an uncorrupted creation where God is fully present and his glory is unrestrained. I can't get my head around that. But it sounds awesome. So I want to close just by reminding you of a couple of the things that we do know and that we know for sure. In, in the words of Jesus from the Gospel of John, I don't want your hearts to be troubled. I don't, I don't want you to leave here wondering or uncertain. Here are a couple of the things that we know for sure. Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. There will never be a moment in time where you need to do something, want to do something, have to go somewhere, and you do not find Jesus there. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13 so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. He is always here. Why? Or I will not fear what man shall do to me. Whatever happens, wherever we find ourselves, we will not be alone. He's promised to be with us, he says, even to the end of the age. Secondly, when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. We are confident, I say, and willing to be, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. When we die, we will be present with Jesus. We will be where he is. The thief on the cross has this conversation with Jesus, says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today, you will be with me in paradise. What the scripture isn't really clear on is exactly where that is. I don't need to know if I'm going to be with him. We know that God physically re resurrected Jesus. 
We know that death is never the final answer. There is not a single thing that I experience or you experience in our lives that is beyond the scope of God's ability to bring life in that area. There is never a point where we follow Jesus where we look at any aspect of our life and say, well, that's done. That's just dead. I'm just going to grieve. Jesus can bring anything back to life, even our physical bodies. This is why Paul says to the church, listen, we don't grieve with other, like other people because we don't grieve without hope. We know that death is never the final word. 1 Corinthians 15.3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again on the third day. And what's true of him will be true of us. That's the fourth thing we can know with absolute confidence. God will resurrect his people as well. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. The entire trajectory of scripture, that story arc we began with when we started this series, is one of redemption and renewal. We experience that redemption and renewal in part today and we'll experience it completely at some point in the future and we just don't know where that point in the future is. This, Paul would say, is the role of faith. Looking forward in confident anticipation and expectation. Faith isn't, faith isn't cross your fingers, close your eyes. Faith is have a confident expectation in the goodness of God and the truth of his word. Now, that was a lot. You probably have some questions. And if you do, I would love to talk to you about them. You, you, you might be sitting here going, well, John, how do, you, how do you deal with the scripture that says we're going to be caught up to meet him in the air? Well, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. I would love to learn together with you and help, help you and help me in our conversation to more fully understand what God is doing. If, if you have questions, I don't want to leave you unsettled. Um, email me. Here's my email address. John, no H, it will not come to me, at lompokefoursquare.com. That's the easiest way to let me know you got a question. You can send me the question. You could say, hey, can, can we talk about this? I, every once in a while, I get to sit down with my friend Sally, and she brings me questions that she has come up with as she's been reading the Bible. And it is a joy and a delight for me to talk to people about Scripture. Sometimes Sally asks me questions that make my head hurt. She is a smart woman who hears from Jesus. Sometimes I go, here's, here's the answer. It's pretty clear. And sometimes I go, can I get back to you? I'm not entirely sure. If you're open to those answers, here's the answer. I'm not sure. Can I get back to you? I'd love to talk to you and help you just grow even more deeply in love with Jesus and experience more of his life at work in you and through you because that's his hope and his plan for you. Amen? Can we pray? Jesus, your word says that right now we, we know in part and see in part, but there will be a day where we know fully as we are fully known. God, I look forward in great joy and anticipation to that moment. And I'm grateful, Lord, that the moments between this, this one and that one are not wasted. Lord, that you have, you have called and commissioned us to live lives that prophetically point to what you are going to do, that demonstrate the restorative, redemptive power of our living Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So, God, I ask that we would live this, leave this place with a sense of joy and excitement because you're not done. And in your not doneness, you're inviting us to do along with you.
God, may you be glorified in our presence, in our lives. And as you taught us to pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.